Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hey everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic, or should I say, Gothside Picnic. Um, We said we're going to start discussing gothic literature, and here we are, talking about one of the most important, among novels that could be described as gothic, it's probably the most important in literary history, or close to it, but it's also an odd example of the gothic for a lot of reasons. That book is Wuthering Heights, one of my favorite novels, really influential on me in general, and a big influence on my current novel project, to tease a little bit there. And my co-host, Pete, who is... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, sorry. Uh, You might say that in terms of of personality and intensity, he's the the Lockwood to my Heathcliff. Um... (laughs) Yeah, that that is fair, actually. <laughs> um, but he's he's read Wuthering Heights before, I believe, and I'm making him reread it. And the crux of this, as we're gonna get into, is the first time he read it, he didn't like it. And Pete, do you want to tell us why you didn't like Wuthering Heights the first go round? Yeah, yeah, I can I can speak to that. Um, have you ever heard of a thing called academic decathlon? Uh Vaguely, it's some nerd, some nerd stuff, right? Oh, yeah. And I mean, honestly, that's as deep as most people ever need to go. But the basic idea is you take a bunch of kids from a school, you give them a bunch of theme tests and you give them medals like it's the Olympics. So there's a science thing. There's a math thing, blah, 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 blah. And I was required to read Wuthering Heights for academic decathlon. And I remember finding out what book it was the day that I had to go in for academic decathlon, holding the book, skimming through it, trying to get a general idea of what the hell was going on. And then I wrote a paper about it and I got a gold. But that is like the extent (laughs) of my ties to Wuthering Heights until uh, you suggested I actually read it in a a normal way. So you're saying you did your your Pete like super skim speed read when you were like 16. Yeah, that's exactly what I did, man. Like, uh, no intent at, at, at processing anything, just trying to get enough of the pieces. It wasn't even for enjoyment, really. It was just like, could I regurgitate something coherent about it to make show that I'd read it when in a very real sense, I hadn't. So if you didn't process it at all and you only vaguely understood what happened in it, why did you not like it? Like, why did you have this lasting impression 35 years later when I asked you, like, <laughs> about Wuthering Heights? Well, it's there. I I can see why I didn't like it now. And those reasons aren't they don't make me dislike it at the moment. Like, there's no. uh, uh 
Oh, like normally, if I'm really into genre fiction of any of the genre fiction I like, like there's there's a hero and there's crazy shit happening. Right. It's like it's a it's a stage. It's dramatic. There's activity. People are making choices. And Wuthering Heights is I mean, it's a lot more atmospheric and it has elements I mean, it's almost like a Greek play. Like, I don't like many of the people in Wuthering Heights, but I also feel like they're they're not choosing to suck. It's like their circumstances and what's going on is making them make the choices that I, do, I don't feel like they have agency in the same way. And when I was younger, that would repulse me. And now, I mean... Like, when you get older and you realize how few choices you actually have in life, the idea that forces behind, beyond your control are controlling your life seems a little more insightful. Very interesting. So, a couple of things I would have fastened onto there that you said. Um, yeah. You, you kept referring to stage and to drama, and I think that is really interesting in the case of Wuthering Heights, because as you noted when you said, in the genre fiction you like, a lot of things happen. And they are put, so to speak, on center stage, this dramatic action. Wuthering Heights is one of the great sort of offstage novels in the sense that a lot happens offstage. Yeah. The most, perhaps most importantly, Heathcliff disappears offstage and comes back with, this is a spoiler, um, but <laughs> let's just say that, you know, predictably, if you know anything about this story, um, you know, he has a rough childhood, comes back with a fortune and... What was this, you know, abandoned child who grew up as the disfavored foster child? Where did he get this money? Well, who knows? We never know. There have been whole, you know, there's been a lot of ink spilled, both uh, nonfiction analysis. And I'm sure there have been, I'm sure people have at least attempted to write. There's probably a lot of bad novels out there about like Heathcliff's, you know. um, (laughs) Heathcliff fan fiction. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, this is, you talk about fan fiction and like, you know, uh, online slash fic and like bodice rippers. I mean, one reason we're doing this book is because it's had a profound impact on genre writing of all kinds, uh, certainly on fantasy and horror, but it's also had, I mean, an unspeakable amount of influence on, on romance novels. Um, and you know, it's because many reasons it's, it's ultimately, this is one of the most, as Orwell called this, he called this book perverse, he was a he was a great he was very well versed in the literary uh, English literary canon and, and he had a low opinion of <laughs> of this novel and I think that's one of the things that I would say about it that it's interesting to me is that both Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre the two famous no, most famous novels by the Bronte sisters um, they are both love stories that are perverse and strange and dark and transgressive enough that they still challenge our moral sensibilities now two centuries after they were written, which is a really interesting achievement. Um, you know, Jane Austen's love stories don't, don't challenge our sensibilities at all and haven't for a long time. That's one reason she's so safe and comfortable. This might be a great author, don't get me wrong, but the Brontes had a real talent for creating enduring love stories that really continue to challenge our moral sensibilities. And I, I love that you brought that up. But yeah, I mean, back to the offstage thing, like it's, it's such an interestingly constructed novel. I think just as a writer, it, it's very hard to reproduce some of the things that this does. And I mentioned Lockwood and Heathcliff. The important thing here is that this story has what you might call an Ishmael or a Nick Carraway, namely a first-person narrator who is distant from the, the, the sort of intense emotional core of the story. They're distant from the most intense character. And this is kind of a device that I'm using in my current project, so I'm fond of it. 
But Lockwood is so far removed. Uh, he shows up after most of the important things have happened, and some important things happen after he gets there, but mostly it's being recounted to him and he's piecing things together. And what he's doing is kind of unspooling this mystery of like, why is everybody at this house, Wuthering Heights, why are they all so, uh, <laughs> so angry and fucked up? And what is going on? The sense of dread and loss and foreboding, like what happened? That That's how the story unfolds of, of Heathcliff's past and, uh, you know, the Earnshaws and everything else. Well, um, yeah, I, I know it wasn't, this wasn't supposed to happen, but in a weird sort of way, it reminded me of Lovecraft because that's a device that Lovecraft used a lot where it was like somebody shows up into this situation and tries to piece together what happened in the past. And I kept thinking about that as I was going through this, that, that I mean, I'm sure he didn't model it after Wuthering Heights, for heaven's sakes, but, I mean, the, that, that piece at least was similar. Yeah, and I think Wuthering Heights, is, it's canonical enough that it's one of the books that someone like Lovecraft probably read um, back when anyone who had any kind of literary education was versed in a very strong canon. Wuthering Heights was probably part of it um, for a lot of the history of Anglophone letters. Um, so, I mean, and again, like, as we're talking about both the Lovecraft thing, it, you know, there's a sense which is this is a te- detective story, although Lockwood is, like, a very strange choice of detective. Uh, but, you know, it's... it. Um, you can sort of see, like, just the choices that are being made here to give you the story from the point of view of someone for whom it's occluded, not just in time and space, but emotionally, because Lockwood is emotionally, like he, he gets emotionally in, implicated in all of this, but he's initially distant and it's never going to be his story in the way that it is for someone like Heathcliff. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot to be learned there as a writer about you can't always locate yourself right next to the most intense character. Sometimes their luminosity needs to just shine elsewhere and sort of shadow your narrator or your protagonist. Um, but I, I think back to your point about like atmosphere. I mean, this book, I think again, the, the whole idea of it, of it remaining transgressive centuries later, it's a very mysterious book. I think it's opaque in a lot of ways. And one thing we talked about the show elsewhere is authorial intention, which is a fraught concept because we have the intentional fallacy. Like how can we ever know it's really inside of someone's head? Well, you know, I mean, there are ways to piece together the intentionality of a work. Um, you know, Parasite, a movie that we're going to talk about later on the show and another episode. Um, <laughs> you can you can piece together the, uh, the director's intentions because he's given very eloquent statements about them publicly. He's You can also look at the rest of his body of work and you can very clearly see what he was trying to do with Parasite. The thing about Wuthering Heights is Emily Bronte died very young. She led a a strange but quiet life. And I like to think that sort of this idea of occlusion, of, of having this story unfold for someone who's only glimpsing the edges and feels emotionally removed from all this intensity. I mean, that's the life of someone who lives in their parents' house, dies in their 30s, um, and is only feel is only glimpsing the world through, <laughs> you know, through a window, so to speak, by candlelight, which is a, a recurring motif in Wuthering Heights. Am I making sense here, Pete? Yes, you're making a lot of sense. I can I ask you something that's a little embarrassing, Connor? Um, Please. So, background, uh, like when I when I was growing up, I was really into goth in a way that has no application here in that I like, I really enjoyed the music of Susie and the Banshees and Bauhaus and 
girls who th- call themselves goth I thought were attractive. And like, God help me, that's not what we're talking about. And I've never really done a real exploration of what goth means or gothic writing really means in terms of literature. And so I can't, I'm sure most of our listeners know pretty well what what gothic literature is, but I basically don't. Could you give like a, could you pretend I'm a first year student for a second and give me a broad outline? Pete, I love you so much for doing the classic, uh, teacher thing of saying, well, I'm the really, I'm the really dumb one here. Please just explain this to me. I'm sure everyone else knows. That's great. Thank you for doing that. I'm sorry to break the fourth wall on you, but hey. Oh, that's okay. Um, That was, that was very skillful. Look, I think that the answer is that Gothic literature, it's this sort of tantalizing term because it sounds, it sounds so dramatic. It conjures up these really interesting uh, and sinister foreboding, like, images of like Dracula's castle or, you know, Weather Heights out on the rainy moors. Um, and it is all, it's a very confused term too, because we've heard it used, it, it gets used in such different contexts, like Southern Gothic. Someone will say like Flannery O'Connor or Faulkner are doing Southern, Southern Gothic. How does that relate to like the castle of a Toronto or Dracula or Frankenstein, like, you know, or German Gothic literature. Um, and I think there's not necessarily an elegant answer. Uh, it's, you know, Look, there's a lot of ways to talk about this. Gothic is often discussed as a subgenre of horror. I think it's stretching the definition of horror pretty far to say that simply because, you know, the Gothic isn't necessarily scary. It is more like Pete said. It's more of a it's more of a question of atmosphere. Um, but I think the key traits of the Gothic, the, the Gothic is always interested in death and in usually and in, in ruins and in decay. There's an overall sense of darkness, I think, literal and metaphorical. Like, I mean, Wuthering Heights is constantly being discussed as this sort of like place that's battered by storms out on the moors, and the characters are always shutting or opening windows against the weather, or going out into the rain or the snow. Like, you know, there's this sort of like elemental intensity of dark and light, that kind of interplay. But again, death and being haunted, I think this is the key thing. And I'm sure I'm stealing from a lot of people that I'm not crediting here, so forgive me. But ghosts, you know, oft, usually in what's classic classic Gothic literature, like the 19th century English Gothic, there's often a sense that there's a ghost or there's a haunting going on. And often the text explains that away so that there's sort of a sense of supernatural dread or foreboding. And it's often turns out to not be the case. And then there are famous Gothic novels where there is something very supernatural going on, such as Dracula, Frankenstein, etc. So again, it varies. It's hard to pin down. But I think there's that the death... Not just death in the abstract, but the way that we're haunted by things that have happened in the past and should be dead and gone, but are never going to leave us. So in a sense, the God that can be adapted then to be about, you know, the sins of history, you know, sort of like structural crimes. And I have, look, I have a whole theory about this, folks. I have an article coming out soon from the outline about something I call revolutionary Gothic. So stay tuned for that. But again, I think the key point is Gothic has ghosts, whether literal or metaphorical. They haunt you. They impinge upon what you're trying to do. They're often very moralistic because they point to specific sins or specific crimes that happened. Um, Often families are haunted by things that the individuals who are suffering have not necessarily done or been implicated in themselves. But the point is that things that should be dead and gone or that we want to be dead and gone are not dead and gone. And that brings this darkness. It brings a sense of dread, of dread, of gloom. 
of foreboding. And the other the other key piece about the Gothic, a lot of Gothic work has a lot of romance in it. And Wuthering Heights is a prime example of this. Um, romance, and often in the past, especially when you couldn't be direct about sex, a lot of it becomes very allegorical about sex. I mean, Dracula is a very erotic novel, um, but it's all allegorized through the vampire shit, which I love, of course. Okay, that's that's my best stab at an answer for you. How did I do? Yeah. Oh, I think you did great. Uh, uh, I'm going to f- I'm going to follow up with a a weirder, less expected question. I think. Have you ever seen Heinrich, Heinrich Ibsen's Ghosts? Actually, no. Okay. Um, Heinrich Ibsen, for the folks at home, is a Norwegian playwright, immensely talented. Ghosts is a play about well basically about venereal disease the sins of the father being visited upon the children and i've always thought of it as an attempt at realism and now i'm wondering if it's actually supposed to be gothic well actually i'm gonna look this up right now um i think you might be landing somewhere between the gothic and the realistic as i'll explain in one sec as i hit the wikipedia because i'm (laughs) okay (laughs) to check something um. Okay, I don't think he's associated with naturalism directly. I guess, but in his era, there were a lot of like there, you know there is there is of course naturalism between not necessarily located in time and space between sort of the gothic and the realistic. All these things exist concurrently, but I think naturalism has a lot in common with gothic because it's, it's about sort of the way that you exist within encompassing systems and your agency is taken away from you by these, these forces that one might say haunt or just fully impinge or define you. Um, and again, it's similar to the Gothic, but it's not quite as focused on death on, on haunting or on secrets. I should mention that's one thing I didn't say that's a Gothic. Often there's secrets or mysteries, which Wuthering Heights certainly has as well. Um, so yeah, I think Ibsen is a really useful one to, person to bring in here because there would have been a lot of playwrights and artists of various kinds thinking about all of these questions in his era um, throughout his career. Um, yeah, I mean that's again like all these elements I discussed with regard to the Gothic. They can they can they can exist in other genres. I think the Gothic is a very malleable genre. I think that it's you know. <sighs> It's a genre that we love to layer into other things now because it, it gives you this sort of ready-made ability to imp, you know implicate death and loss and decay and grief, but then also to leap into action romance to sort of set vitality against that. It's a genre that gives you a ready-made set of tools for that. So I think there's there's more and more things that partake in some ways of the gothic genre at least. Um, but of course, we live in an era where genres are being exploded left and right, sometimes to great effect and sometimes not. I'll stop monologuing. I do have a question for you, though, Pete. Okay. I was enjoying um, the monologue, though. <laughs> That's basically all I had to say. Okay. I have a question for you, though. I, I um, You've talked about this a little bit before. You've kind of teased it. But you said on the pod that doing this with me and hearing, you know, coming into some of my circles, seeing the way that I approach things has change the way that you read literary fiction and your view of what what literary work means as a, and of course I'm saying as opposed to genre works which is what we mostly focus on sure what do you what do you mean by that um especially through the lens of Wuthering Heights but I'm also interested to hear just in general 
Sure. Well, I mean, one of the things about genre fiction, at least the genre fiction that I historically have read and the things I have uh, been into, um, if you watch a lot of television, the tools I have always used to analyze the work are ones that you're familiar with. Like, what's the plot like? Um, is, is, are, are the effects interesting? What is, is what, what the person describing, does it bring you somewhere? All of those things that's basically on some level, it sort of feels like watching television, the, the way I've approached, uh, like genre reading, the, the reading I, I traditionally do since I've started having these discussions with you, Connor, and I start hearing about like critical theory and the works you enjoy and why, like I've tried to approach books on their own terms when I'm moving outside of the genre bubble. So for example, with Wuthering Heights, really what I've tried to do is take my expectations and set them to the side. Like I knew wandering into Wuthering Heights that I was unlikely to find a gunfight. You know, or I was unlikely to see like the traditional, like the progressive path of a hero, which is something I'm very interested in in genre reading. Uh, the The purpose of this book and some of the other books we've talked about are completely outside of that, as is, uh, well, I mean, what what you'd call my moral stance. Like, taking a moral stance to Wuthering Heights just sort of feels stupid because um, the, the point of these people is they aren't making choices in some ways. They, they, they are trapped in uh, a societal machine or a, just a world. You don't even need to talk about society that's larger than themselves and is driving them towards bad results. And so the idea of looking at it through the lens that I traditionally do is, I mean, it's bullshit. It doesn't accomplish anything. It certainly doesn't accomplish uh, what the author intended. And so I'm trying to approach these books on their own terms. And I mean, so far, so good. I, I mean, I'm enjoying this and I'm paying attention to different things than I normally would. And I'd call that a win. Okay, well, that's in, all very interesting. I do think this is where I'm going to have to. I don't know if I said this earlier in the episode, but I'm going to say it again. Um, I've read this book a couple times. Uh, uh-huh. Pete is rereading it, but neither of us have gotten through it this most recent time yet. So we're doing a couple episodes on this, and this is our first installment where we haven't actually finished reading it, and we're not going deep into spoilers. So Wait, I say is that, there a gunfight? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's not. But. Uh, <laughs> I say that to illustrate the point. I think by the time you get to the end, Pete, on a more careful read, um, we'll see. We might disagree about this. This is setting up some interesting, interesting topics for the next time we talk about this. But I, I, I personally think Heathcliff has a great deal of agency um, as this story moves along. Not as a child, because who has agency as a child in any meaningful sense? But he definitely... I think that his willfulness again. This is again. This is all shrouded in mystery. There's different ways to interpret what happens, but I do think that what interests me about Heathcliff is that he's he's sort of willfully imposes to an ex, to the extent that he can, which is limited. He tries to impose his his will on all these things that you're talking about. Does he necessarily succeed? What happens? I think that's all very complicated and worth asking questions about. But I I do think, though, that what makes this book so interesting is precisely that sense of 
that struggle against things that seem impossible to overcome, but you're going to do your best as willfully as you can. And again, that's one deep way in which this uh, this one influences my writing. Do okay. Th- this is a goofy question, but I've been sort of wondering it. Do you ever listen to music when you read? Uh, not so much when I read. When I write, sometimes I do. Okay, I. Sometimes I do. Well, I mean, honestly, most of the time it's a waste of time because like when I do most of my reading, it's almost like I'm hypnotized. You pretty much have to shake me to get my attention. But I found with Wuthering Heights, like I've been uh, I've been playing music that that tries to capture the mood. Like I've been listening to Sarah McLaughlin's obsession, like basically on repeat very quietly when I've been reading this book. And that's a new experience for me. And I just didn't know whether, like, am I, am, am I having some sort of brain thing or do people do that sometimes? I don't know. I don't think you're having a brain thing. I think that's it's interesting. <laughs> I love that you're doing Sarah McLachlan. Of course, uh, you know, Pete, as you'll become intimately aware as we do this, there is a very famous song called Wuthering Heights. Have you listened to it yet by Kate Bush? I have not. Um, <laughs> a- Apple recommended it. So uh, that's... <laughs> I was holding off in case it became a part of this. Uh, you know, I think there's a chance it just might become part of this episode. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, it's it's a fun song. I mean, yeah, this is definitely this is this is the more atmospheric a story is, the more it lends itself to that kind of creating a playlist. I was actually talking to um, Emma Burquist, friend of the pod, about uh, about Wait, this. She's- She's a young adult writer, man. Are we still talking to those? Oh, yeah. Young adult writers are all canceled, except Emma. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> YA is canceled. Um, well, except for Emma and Joe Walton. Those are the only two that I'm allowing through here. <laughs> that seems fair. <laughs> um, yeah, so Emma and I are talking about this, and she said she, cre- she creates playlists for all of her projects, which I think is interesting. And I have created a playlist for my current project that could also double as a sort of contemporary playlist for Wuthering Heights. In fact, the song Wuthering Heights is on the playlist I created for my project. Interesting. Um, but the rest of the songs on there could also definitely work if you were trying to create um, something that would suit the moods of Wuthering Heights, as I read them at least. I do I do want to fasten on to something that you've said to me casually about this book, and I'm, I'm going to call you out a little bit and challenge you Uh-oh. here. Uh-oh. All right. No, Challenging I mean, is fair. What I thought was really interesting, the first time we, we talked about Weather Heights, which has been many months ago now, you just casually said that you didn't like anyone in the book and that that was enough to make you not like the story. And I know that you're going to, you're going to, you know, you're going to say like, well, I was in, I was in error and I've learned so much and I've grown, but I, no, want I, you to, I pretty much still don't like anybody in the book. <laughs> well, I do. So that I figured when I say, I think you're going to say that you've grown because you've come to understand that good stories don't need to have likable characters. Right. Well, I, 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 I would say it's a valid choice to make. Um, I, I think that, um, huh, it's hard. Like I, I would never be the guy who said, you know, if you're going to be a successful writer, you must have at least one character that I can latch onto and identify with. Like who the hell am I? But I, it does, it's a very different read. You know, the fact that I'm looking at these people and wanting to scream at them. Yeah. I mean, 
Well, look, I've said this before on here. It's, it's a point that bears repeating, though. The publishing industry believes essentially that, that you must have characters that people can identify with, connect with, that will warmly welcome them into the story. I mean, there are books that, that are sold that pointedly do not have that. Mm-hmm. But that is a huge, like, that is just at the core of so many uh, books that are sold to major publishers. Like, that, that's often the crux of it. And I... I hate that that that's the case but the point being you're not you're not alone in that impulse it's never been the way that i've read things and i think wuthering heights is an interesting illustrative example for me to use because as i say i've said to people here at writing school i've said this to eric hey i've said it to many people over the, the you know i've said it to my agent many times like it's like i the way that i learned to read novels um a lot of my reading has been very dutiful a lot of it has been things that i felt that i should read to learn about them specifically to learn about their moment in literary history, to learn about whatever subgenre um, they're in, and a lot. And one of that has really crippled in me. And one reason that I'm really happy to have this podcast is that I just sort of lost my sense of what it would mean to focus on reading things that I liked and to reproduce the things that I liked for other people that might like them. Um, and a lot of my journey the last few years has been to sort of piece that back together. Now, I will say that Wuthering Heights is one that I read out of sense of duty and then realized I liked a lot. So that was a pleasant surprise. Um, but, like, I sort of emotionally crippled myself as a reader by trying to focus on very high-flown literary self-education, um, intellectualizing things too much, being too cold-blooded. And that's really it's really been a big harm to my writing. I mean, I think that a lot of writers that create works that do fairly well in the marketplace when they're young. Um, a lot of them have just read a jillion examples of that genre. <laughs> so it's just deep within their DNA by the time they set out to do it. And that's one way to make things easier on yourself and get there faster as a writer. Um, I didn't do that to myself. And I think that, you know, if you clearly, I think the distinction here is that you clearly, you've always gravitated towards the things that you liked and have dug deeply into them and, and ranged far. But range far in realms that you know you like, right? Right. I, I mean, it's like a metaphor I keep thinking about. It's like you've you spent your life going through like a culinary arts academy, and we get together, and I keep trying to get you to eat a cheeseburger. <laughs> I have this image in my head just now of me like in an immaculate white chef's outfit, like preparing. <laughs> Preparing like tiny little, you know, uh, beautifully sliced potatoes or whatever. And then I just go visit you and you have this like barbecue sauce stained shirt and you're like <laughs> grilling and a I'm rack of ribs. 50 f- fries into my mouth at once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, that's there's like a lot. There's so much to be said about this. I mean, I'm the person who, you know, we can talk about other art forms. I'm the person who kept going to the concert hall to listen to like atonal avant-garde classical music and you were you were the guy who was just you know rocking out at the punk show or whatever and like yeah let's let's go see insane clown posse you know i think that luckily i think wuthering heights is one of those books that like i have a deep theory about how people's tastes get formed in reading and i think part of it is being given novels much like this one when they're too young like if you're given this i mean partly because you read this when you were too young i mean no offense and I've helped, uh, I've helped teenage, teenagers read this book in my capacity as a tutor. And like, it's just very difficult to understand what the hell's going on here when you're 15. There is a period where the characters are young. But like, I think understanding 
Heathcliff's rage and his desire for vengeance and the form that his love and obsession takes and the form that his resentments and anger take. I think understanding what all the characters are doing is difficult until you're an adult and you've lost certain things. You've had certain dreams and desires shattered. Yeah. Um, you've been through some pain. I think once once you get there, this book makes a lot more sense. I think when you're young and you're giving this when you're 15, you're like, these people, like you said, Pete, these people are all, they're all psycho. They're all unlikable. What are they all doing? <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, honestly, my my dislike I, and that's that's interesting. Let's talk about that. My dislike of Heathcliff when I read it a billion years ago uh, was that he was incomprehensible. And now I don't like him because he is so comprehensible. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. Like, I think that's that's true of a lot of like young readers who go to this like, what is Heathcliff doing? Because, again, it's. It's occluded. It gets explained in detail, but it's like you're never going to have like this encounter with Heathcliff in the pages of the story where like he's going to sort of like bear his soul. You're going to have to infer it based on these very stormy interactions that he has, stormy or sardonic, um, mm-hmm. and then through what, what characters say about him and his past. And that's very frustrating. I think it's very hard to pull off literarily. I mean, it's not what you would typically advise people to try to do. And I think in our second episode on this, I'm going to talk a lot about structure and the choices this book makes that are so specific and interesting. Um, and what a genius Emily Bronte was. And this was her only her only completed published work. Um, God, she was a strange person and an interesting person. It's a shame she didn't live longer. Um, but... Yeah, like this, it could be this book, it could be Jane Eyre by her sister, it could be any number of things. I think when people are giving them too young, they just seem boring. They seem obtuse because they are archaically written, et cetera, et cetera, and it's hard to just, it's hard to just follow and understand them, let alone analyze them when you're young and not a very good reader yet. You know, and I think all of that, like, really shapes reading taste for the worse. It leads to those terrible threads you see on Twitter of like, Tell me which, you know, great enduring novels are actually bad. And it's like, it's just people, like, they haven't they haven't engaged them in this material since they were 15 and forced to read it by a bad teacher, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that that's something I have a lot of passion behind, is when, when, when somebody says this particular great work is a piece of garbage, it's like that applying personal standards to... The quality of books in general is a perfectly good thing to do when you're just trying to decide what you're trying to what you want to read. But when you're having a larger discussion of what good writing is, I mean, it's just it's not a useful thermometer. It's not enough to say I like this. And it's one of the reasons that I'm enjoying this aspect of the podcast, because the fact that I didn't initially like Wuthering Heights isn't an argument against the book and revisiting it and having a greater understanding of just what the hell it is, is incredibly valuable to me. Hey, this is great. I'm getting an education in genre fiction. You're getting a re-education in literary fiction. Everybody wins. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's sort of a a mirrored Pygmalion thing going on. (laughs) (laughs) True, true. Yeah. I, uh, I carved you out of marble, Pete. You're my, you're my image of, (laughs) my image of beauty. Um, yeah. Just you wait, Henry. No, I am not singing My Fair Lady. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we talked a good amount about Wuthering Heights, but while I've got you here, I want to bring something up that yeah. we're going to talk about elsewhere in a different episode, but I want to touch on it a little bit. The um, the John M. Ford article today in Slate. 
Yes. Um, how much... Now, I know you have a lot to say about this. I'll frame it for people. John M. Ford was a very gifted and dynamic um, and widely beloved by big names like Neil Gaiman uh, and Joe Walton and other people we've talked about in this podcast, other giants of genre fiction. He was... He wrote science fiction and fantasy and all kinds of things. Um, you know, he was born in the late 50s, died, unfortunately, in the early to mid-2000s. Um, very prolific. And this article was sort of getting into why are his books out of print? Like, what happened to this guy? He was, a, he was a big deal in his time and sort of disappeared pretty rapidly after his death. And the article is a great – it's by Isaac Butler. It's in Slate. You should read it. Uh, it's on our Twitter accounts. Check it out. It's a good read. Um, we're also in talks to discuss that article at greater length. Um, we're going to get that done. But I, I a couple things I want to fasten onto here. Um, okay. How much, Pete, did it freak you out that this guy died at exactly the age you are now and that he was also from Minnesota? <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, just knowing who is, like, what I pieced together from that article, uh, there's no possible way we weren't in the same place at the same time at some point. Right, because you were going to, like, you know, bookstore uh, parties or whatever in Minneapolis at the same yeah, time as he was living there, right? Right, and there's, like, certain, like, if you're a science fiction goof, there are some bookstores in Minneapolis that you are going to. And considering I spent, like, a, a 20th of my life while I lived there in those damn bookstores, we were definitely in the same place at the same time. And you're right, there was, I, uh, I, I attempted to crash a couple of science fiction parties in the hope of, like, being near Neil Gaiman. Like, looking back, I have no explanation of, like, what I was going to do if we actually <laughs> did talk. You're just going to say, dude... I love your work. Which oh, be, yeah. Which would be you fine. So he's very cool. Yeah, he's very gracious about fans, so I'm sure you'd be one of the many, many thousands of people to approach him and say that, so. Yeah, uh, but, but it's so embarrassing, man. Like, what a weird thing to do. I mean, just buy the books. I don't know. I, I mean, fair. All fair. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, this guy sounded really fascinating because, like, again, read the article, but he was like, very precocious, kind of flunked out of school, flunked out of university partly because he was just playing very early, what would have been very early role-playing games in like the early 70s and uh, uh, racked up a $3,000 library fine in the 70s, which that's a lot of money back then. Um, you know, some of his Traveler expansions, some of the role-playing stuff he wrote, I have on my shelves. I wow. just didn't know it was him. Yeah, I mean, this guy, John M. Ford, sounds... Absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, he would like he would do things. I think Gaiman in that article said that he he invited this guy to his annual Christmas party, and and there was a typo on the, the directions, and John M. Ford like wrote an entire play, a comic play based on the typo or whatever. Like it just, <laughs> and he was constantly doing things like that. It sounds like just a fascinating guy. And I think that what's really what's really somber about this, I mean, one of the reasons he died at age forty nine is. Um, he was constantly poor health and he's constantly fighting with the American healthcare system. Uh, yeah. Broke despite publishing a lot of books, which is a, you know, a typical situation. Um, well, and but, if, there, if he ever did make any money, he'd lose it immediately because of his health problems. Precisely, yes. I'm sure he was making, you know, he must have made some money writing, but he was always just 
constant financial problems. Um, again, typical for writers throughout history. Just a really sad state of affairs. And the good news here, the good news is that his books are coming out. Um, Tor has, I guess, negotiated to get the rights to do pretty much everything he did to reissue it. And um, so I'm sure once that actually happens, you know, we'll pick one of those books eventually and we'll talk about him on Podside Picnic. But yeah, read the article. It's really one of the more interesting articles about the fiction writing life that I've read in a long time. Um, yeah, it, it, I don't know. It, it, I told Pete before we logged on here, I was struggling because I was feeling very depressed about being a writer and the writing life and what success would even mean if I got there and what all of this means and how it operates in our lives. And I feel a little bit better at talking about Wuthering Heights because it energizes me. But, um, you know, there's a lot of <clears throat> just a lot of sobering things out there if you're a writer. <laughs> well, I mean, like the world's a piece of crap right now. You don't have to look very hard to find something that's going to bum you out. But I... I, I really believe in what you're doing, man. I know I know you don't need me to jazz you up in the middle of an episode. I'm just saying, you know, I, I'm I'm glad you're where you're at. Well, thanks, dude. No, and look, you're always welcome to jazz me up. It's always helpful. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It really is always helpful. It it just thank you. I appreciate that. I know you I know you mean it. It's um you know, I think the current project that we'll discuss at length some other time. I think soon we're gonna do a beer run and talk about my current project because it's far enough along that I feel like I can um, talk about it in more detail, but it, I believe in it too. I just think that the, the, the constant struggle for an artist is being like, wow, I'm excited about this. Wow, I believe in it. And then on the one hand saying to yourself, well, I also see the flaws because they're always there and, you know, correcting them, seeing and correcting them is a huge part of your work. And on the other hand, like, what would it mean for this to succeed? Like, what can I really expect to have happen? Um, and those are, I think, questions that never fully go away. I'm sure that someone like Gaiman, who makes massive money on everything he does, I'm sure that nonetheless, he's disappointed the way certain things are received or the impact they have. And I'm sure he's constantly frustrated. And again, it's like, he may be hugely famous, but that's just how it goes. Uh, we also had the YA Twitter fracas uh, of very rich <laughs> YA writers getting big mad about like criticism and taking out all of their, you know, trying to, trying to have this catharsis of taking this all out on a... <laughs> <laughs> random well, young woman just, in South Dakota. It's the opposite of what you should do. Like the yeah. name of the game these days is forming a relationship with your fans and growing your brand. Like you don't take public dumps on random people who don't like you. That's insane. Oh, it was terrible. And I'm glad that some of those writers have backtracked and apologized. It was all very uh, not great. But I, you know, I bring it up only just to say like, <laughs> if, if someone who's made that many millions of dollars, like Sarah Dessen, can you know have a moment where she f freaks out enough about criticism to like melt down on Twitter about it, and then has to go through the much more arduous process of backtracking and apologizing? Um, yeah, clearly all artists are, are struggling. You know, all artists with any serious intention, whether their work is good or not, are struggling with these things. So, you know, it's just it's 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 a kind of a join the club thing, I guess. I I have one more question for you, Connor, and then you know we can go where you want with this. Um, <clears throat> I I am not working from the 15th to the 28th of December. Yeah, cool. Uh do you you want to you want to do an episode like in person? Uh yeah, we can probably do that. I'm like running through okay. dates in my head of like the, so the only the only thing is like um I probably I'm going to go home for 
significant part of that. And sure, that stretch. Let's well, talk. I mean, Christmas yeah. is there. Let's not, let's. I you probably don't want to see me at Christmas time, dude. <laughs> well, no, it's just that that's like that the fifteenth is like exactly when I'd be getting ready to go home. Okay. Um. Let's. Yeah. Let's. Let's talk about. It. We might be able to make it happen, though. I think we can. I think okay. we can figure something out. Yeah. I'm sure. All right. Well, that's that's where we're gonna leave things, I guess. Probably, folks. Uh, you're gonna get more weathering heights. By the way, we're gonna do at least one more episode on this because today we just talked broad strokes. But I want to dive in once we've actually finished reading the thing. So, this is episode number one of Gothside Picnic, <laughs> Wuthering Heights installment. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, everybody. You have-